0: Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus." has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking about parallels that we might draw to other places in scripture. One of the things I thought about was actually more of a contrasting account, and that is Job and his friends. And Job's friends create such a clear contrast to the friends that we see in this passage today. Job, of course, in, in, his, in his book, in his story, loses all that he has and is brought down really to the lowest pit that any of us could ever imagine. And he has friends who try to come alongside him. But rather than coming alongside him, they spend their time trying to comb through his life and try to figure out what is the sin that Job committed that brought all of this calamity upon him. There is irony in what they do. Job's a long book to read, but if you follow the storyline of what's going on in Job, there's irony in what Job's friends are doing, because Job will come to answer them, and he will say that he has lived a life that is more righteous than any of his friends. They say, he says, you're trying to find my sin, I, I'm telling you, I've lived more righteously than all of you. They have nothing to say to this. And what ends up happening in Job is that none of them, Job included, have adequately wrestled with the holiness and the justice and the transcendence of God. In the end, they all receive rebuke, Job and his friends alike, because they have spent this time of suffering, of Job's suffering, haggling over who has more righteousness in an earthly sense. They could have spent this time of suffering praying together, worshiping God trying to find the right posture before God, but they missed this opportunity. Today we see a group of friends who seemingly do the the exact opposite as it pertains to the suffering of their friend, their friends of this paralyzed man. And rather than trying to comb through his life and try to find some particular sin that has made his life this way, they want him to experience the healing power of Jesus. And they end up bringing something very important to light about the authority that Jesus has been given from the Father. Thus, in thinking through these things together, in this passage, brothers and sisters, we learn what it means to humbly come to Christ in faith. That's one of the things we learn from this passage. And we also learn that we need to understand that we all need grace. Finally, we ponder how those who are healed And how those who experience or see or witness the healing can all glorify God together. Let us turn to this passage then and consider some of those things. There's an instant excitement in today's passage. Jesus, of course, has been going through the country in Galilee, going from place to place. And news has spread so much about him that he now has the attention of everyone in Israel. In that day, it was not so much the rich who were the powerful upper class in Israel. Oftentimes, the people with more money were looked down upon because they were seen to be in cahoots with the Roman Empire, people like tax collectors. So it wasn't so much the rich who were the powerful upper class, but it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we see these these people show up in verse 17. This was the group that the people in Israel feared. They were seen to have the inside track, and they knew the ways of God. But Jesus has gotten the attention of this group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he has gotten their attention in a big way. Notice how the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are not coming only from every village in Judea, in Galilee, but they are also coming from Jerusalem. This was a very big deal. This would be a bit like driving through South Holland and and you go past a house or a car and, and you see crowded around that car not only South Holland police and state police but also federal agents and trucks and everything gathering around one car or one house. This was a very big deal. The leaders, the powerful, those who know the law and know God best have come all the way from Jerusalem. In other words, the leaders in Israel have said, enough with this Jesus. We are going to send out the eighteen, send out the all-stars, and surely Jesus will cave under this newfound pressure. But the power of the earthly Jerusalem is not the only one that is operative here. At the end of verse 17, we see that the power of the Lord is upon Jesus to heal. That's not the power of himself, but it is the power of the Father that has been given to Jesus and resides upon and within Jesus to proclaim his message. Thus, although the teachers of the law and the Pharisees think that they're coming to flex their muscle as it pertains to Jesus, the very power for whom they believe they are speaking is the power that lives in and with Jesus. There is an invisible power that resides in him and with him that these Pharisees and the teachers of the law would be shocked to learn about. And this power enables Jesus to do a couple of things early on in this passage. The first thing is that it allows him to see things that no one else can see. This story turns to this group of friends who are trying to help, and that's not a good enough description, is it? These friends were really stop at nothing to see their friend receive the help that they want, to experience the healing power of Jesus. These are the kinds of friends you want. And if you want to be a good friend, this is the kind of friend that you want to be. These men will stop at nothing. They go on a roof of a house, a house that is not their own, and they begin deconstructing the roof so that they can lower this man. Uh, through the tiles of the roof because the crowds were so big and gathering around Jesus. If we were to imagine ourselves in this situation, we can say that probably a lot of people are either annoyed at what these people are doing because it's so disruptive, or they're feeling some secondhand embarrassment, right? Wow, these people really don't know when to stop. They, they don't know when enough is enough. These men are acting foolishly in the eyes of the world, but Jesus looks past all of that and he looks into the inner realities of their heart and what he sees is he sees their faith. This reminded me of a passage we were looking at recently in our Ruth Society Bible study. It reminded me of Samuel's anointing of David as king. And Samuel went to go see all of Jesse's sons and When he sees the oldest, Eliab, Samuel thinks, surely this is the one who is the king. This is the one who's slated to be God's king. He was tall, handsome, powerful. He had a commanding presence. He was in many ways like King Saul had been. But God reminds Samuel that though man is taken by the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart of a man. Thus, what Jesus does here in looking upon the heart and seeing faith, he's showing us once again his divine nature. He's seen things that no mere human being can see. Everyone is is embarrassed or annoyed with what these men are doing. Jesus is looking past that to the inner realities of their heart, and he sees their faith. He is looking upon the heart. He is doing exactly what God says he does In 1 Samuel, Jesus is God in the flesh. His power and his divine nature allow him to do something else that is even more shocking. Jesus responds to the faith of these men in a way that is unexpected. He has been teaching and proclaiming and he's been healing people regularly. And notice how Jesus has been healing up to this point, but he hasn't said what he is about to say. And what he is about to say is what's going to put him over the edge in regards to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's not so much that Jesus was healing sicknesses, but that he is about to say this in regard to the faith that he sees in the the men. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The question that we need to ask here is why Jesus connects the forgiveness of sin to the physical ailment of this man? Why does he do that? What we need to know is that it was a common understanding in Israel during that day that the physically afflicted were under the judgment of God. This was a general feeling because Israel was in covenant with God. And so the ebbs and the flows of your life were oftentimes thought to be a product of how you lived in in regards to your righteousness. Jesus comes to challenge this. There's a good example in John chapter 9. There is a man who was born blind and the people who know him assume that he was born this way because of his sin. John chapter 9 verse 2. I'll read this story for us. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The answer and came home seeing. In other words, one of the things that Jesus does in his teaching is he reveals a depth that goes beyond the surface assumptions of everyone of his day. People in Israel would look around and they would see sickness or people who had it really rough. And he, and the people would think to themselves, surely there is a sin present in the life of this person that made it go that way for them. You could chalk up every affliction to a personal sin of some kind. Jesus comes to challenge this. Listen to how the story ends in John chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus came to show all of Israel that it's not as if life on this earth is about some ladder of achieved righteousness before God. He came to show the entire nation that they were failing to see that they all had need of redemption by the Savior, by the light of the world. Jesus taught that all are blind, Jesus taught that all are as if paralyzed and lying on a mat. All are unable to save themselves. A couple of weeks ago, we had the anniversary of Martin Luther's death. And I was reminded of uh, what he said as uh, he left this world. His dying breath, his last words, he said this, We are all beggars. This is true. We are all beggars. This is true. In other words, at some point in this life, we will be forced to square with the reality that we are creatures who are utterly dependent on something else. That we are creatures who are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. When we are honest, we all must realize that we must stand in a posture of begging for God's grace. We are all beggars. That is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage today. It is those who think that they can see that are truly blind. It is those who think they are perfectly healthy who really need a doctor. Thus, to return to our passage today, Jesus is not saying that this man is paralyzed as a result of his own personal sin but he is using the common understanding of the day to issue a challenge to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's what he's doing. He's, in, he's engaging in a polemical discussion. Thus, when he says, Friend, your sins are forgiven, he's speaking as much to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, issuing a challenge as he is to this paralyzed man and to his friends. He's saying something that a mere human cannot say. Your sins Are forgiven. And this instantly causes a stir, right? We see that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say, Who does he think he is? Who does this guy think he is? Does he think he's God that he can say this? That would have been the natural conclusion that a faithful Israelite would have come to in that day. If you say to someone, Your sins are forgiven, you are doing only what God can do. And it would have been shocking to relate it in some sense to our life today. It would have been a bit like being in a courtroom and someone walks from uh, the audience section behind uh, all of the attorneys and the plaintiffs and the defendants, walks up uh, out of the audience section, goes all the way up to the judge's bench, sits down and looks at the person that's standing trial and says, you are free to go. That's how shocking it would have been, or even more shocking to the people who witnessed this taking place. Jesus is saying what only God can say. Jesus is saying that he is divine. Only God can forgive sin. Thus, the leaders and the Pharisees, teachers of the law, saying, who is this fellow who who speaks this blasphemy? As the readers, of course, we are in on the secret. We know who Jesus is, we have been reading about him, we have been pondering him, all of the things that Luke has said are true about him, that he is divine, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and yet, of course, no one else knows all of these things put together. But Jesus is issuing a challenge to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what he says says next seems quite odd to us. Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that anyone can just say, your sins are forgiven, because there is no way to verify that in the moment, right? Whereas if you say to someone who is crippled, rise, get up, and walk, that person had better get up if you want to be taken seriously, Thus, Jesus is engaging in a type of philosophical proof. What he's doing is he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Jesus says, I'm going to show you that I can do all of these things. I'm going to speak that which is harder, and I'm going to prove it right before your eyes, so that you know that I have the authority to do this other thing that is supposedly easier to say. Jesus says, rise, get up, and walk. He does this so that you may know, as he says, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. In verse 24, we see the first appearance of this title, the Son of Man. This is the first time that it shows up in the Gospel of Luke. What does this title mean and where does it come from? It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It was a title, a messianic figure who is going to be handed authority from God and given the ability to rule and to reign over all of the earth. It's this hero who's given authority. And Jesus says in verse 24 that the Son of Man has been given authority. Okay, we know that from Daniel chapter 7. But what is the authority that the Son of Man has been given? He's been given authority to forgive sin. He has been handed the power from the Father to deal with sin, and he speaks for the entire trinity on this matter. This is the authority that the Son of Man has been given. Thus, the glorious images of Daniel 7 of redemption and reign and rule of God are connected to forgiveness of sin. Let me read a couple verses for us in Daniel chapter 7. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What we learn is that Jesus is this ruler. Luke has been leading up to this moment throughout his gospel, when Jesus will first use this title so that our minds are taken back to Daniel chapter 7 and we can know that Jesus is the Son of Man who comes and who creates this people for God that is made up of every people of every tribe and tongue and language and dominion. Jesus has been given authority and sovereign power to forgive sin to create this people. Jesus will be this ruler. If we think about even just the immediate context of Luke, last week we looked together and and Jesus was on the edge of a town and there's a man who has leprosy and he comes up to Jesus. Jesus touches him and heals him, heals him of his leprosy. And of course, we know back then that leprosy was considered something that was a covenant curse from God. Those people could not approach the temple They could not worship God rightly because uh, they had this physical ailment that showed that God's judgment was upon them. And Jesus heals this man of that. And then in today's passage, he speaks by the power of his voice saying, Your sins are forgiven. Thus, we see that all of these things are working together to show that in a way that is unlike anyone else in all of human history, Jesus has been given authority and power to forgive sin. And he verifies this by his healing, by his working of miracles. That is what makes the work of Jesus so remarkable. It is in this Son of God that forgiveness and reconciliation will take place. The people respond by saying, We have seen remarkable things, remarkable things. A healing would have been one thing, but an act of God, an act of forgiveness taking place out in Galilee is completely another thing. Think about it with me just for a moment. If you are an Israelite at this time, you know that God has placed his authority of dealing with sin upon the temple. And that is always where all of that takes place. We've seen how Luke has been interested in geography throughout his gospel, right? The gospel begins in the middle of the temple. But now Jesus is doing something here today that since the institution of the temple has never taken place outside of the temple. Not only does he say, your sins are forgiven, but he proves that he actually is forgiving the sins of this man of this paralyzed man. Jesus has given an authoritative word that it has happened. Thus, as we consider this passage, brothers and sisters today, oftentimes, when we think about the work of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the power that he gives, we think to ourselves, yeah, Jesus, he's the one who forgives, he's the one in whom we find you know, our sins are washed away and all of those kinds of things. But we need to take a moment to pause and to put ourselves in the shoes of these people who witness this for the first time happening away from the temple. These people who say, remarkable things have happened today. What must happen is what we see happening in verses 25 and 26. The man who is healed goes home praising God or glorifying God. We are not told by if it is what he is speaking or simply by his getting up and walking around. Either way, whether it is his going out and saying what Jesus has done or his getting up and walking, he is glorifying God by what he does. The people who were witnesses to this also give praise or they glorify God. They do the same thing. Notice, the people who see this happen do the same thing that the healed man does. They glorify God. They have witnessed the remarkable forgiving power of Jesus away from the temple for the first time. The Son of Man from Daniel 7 showing the authority that has been handed to him. These people go forth and they glorify God. And what I want to remind us of this morning, brothers and sisters, is that because of the gospel, we go forth and we glorify God. The the gospel tells us a few things. It tells us who we are. It tells us that we are like the paralyzed man or the man born blind. Cannot help ourselves. But it tells us that in Jesus we can be made new. We can be forgiven. The gospel tells us where we are going. Your ultimate destiny is taken care of. The celestial city. Heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Eternal life has been laid up for you. You have been given an inheritance that is imperishable as you cling to Christ and believe in his forgiving blood and work. The gospel tells us where we are going, and the gospel tells us what we are to do when we taste the forgiving power of God. We understand that this community of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we exist so that in our mouths and in our lives we proclaim and embody the matchless grace of God. The grace of God that has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just like this healed man, we must rise up and glorify God. Just like his friends, we must think of ourselves not as more righteous than the downtrodden. We must not think of those around us as getting their just deserts from God but rather we must all see ourselves as sharing in this lamentable reality of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But in the midst of that, we see one who has gone before us, who is not contained to the valley of death, but has risen up. We give him, we give Jesus Christ all glory, laud, and honor in our mouths, in our hearts, and in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, may you call us to trust in him once again. May you make us once again faithful to him. Father, if there is anyone here who has never trusted in Christ who has never come to embrace the gospel, may you work in their hearts today that this may be the day of salvation, that you're a God who offers salvation not within this world. You are not a God who promises to pad our bank accounts or to give us mansions to live in. You're a God who calls us to trust in Christ and be forgiven and be given a treasure which... We never could even fathom in this life and in this world. Call us once again to look to him, our savior and our redeemer. In his name we pray, amen. We respond by singing all glory, laud, and honor. Number 235 in our Red Trinity Hymnals, let's stand together and sing all three verses. have a great day in Christ. Receive the parting blessing of our God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.